This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. We would get in this elevator with other people. And you, I would kind of watch to see if anyone hit six. So, you know, you would kind of look around, is anyone else here for chemo treatment? As people would get off the elevator, it was like, who stayed on to go to six? Oh, okay, you're here for that. This is death, sex, and money. What do I do when he dies? What next? What happens then? What next? The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Well, I won't pay full price, so I'll give you a dime and need to talk about more. I'm sure there are a million women who would love to kiss you. I'm Anna Sale. Four years ago, I was visiting L.A., and I had a beer with my friend Colin Campbell. He and I had worked together in New York, but then he moved to the West Coast, and it had been a while since we'd really caught up. But I did know that he was supporting his wife through breast cancer treatment. I mean, Colin's a producer, so he sort of kind of produced the cancer experience for me. That's Kate Pickert, Colin's wife. I was 35 when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. At the time of her diagnosis, Kate was a healthcare reporter for Time magazine, but she'd had very little experience being a patient. Her instinct as a journalist was to learn more. But when she went to look for a book that talked about the history of breast cancer and the ways we treat it, she couldn't find it. The fact that this book didn't exist and women didn't know this story is like... Something went wrong. So she wrote that book. It's called Radical, The Science, Culture, and History of Breast Cancer in America. Kate first noticed something was wrong in the summer of 2014, soon after she and Colin had moved to L.A. with their then three-year-old daughter. I had some nipple discharge. Most women discover they have breast cancer because they find a lump. Um, The second most common way to find out is through a screening mammogram. Um, But nipple discharge was not something I had ever heard associated with breast cancer. And describe for me just to when you notice this discharge, like what did you notice? Yeah, I just noticed like a few spots kind of inside my bra. I was like, oh, what's that? Did I, like, spill something? Like, what is that? Uh-huh. And just, like, tiny spots. Like, it wasn't that much. It was just a little. And um, I had breastfed my daughter, and I had stopped a while back. But, you know, your your breasts are kind of never the same um, after you breastfeed a baby, as you know. Uh-huh. Um, and so it didn't really concern me very much, and I waited to go to the doctor about it. How long did you wait from when you first noticed? I think it was, like... Three months, uh-huh. um, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, it was a while. <laughs> I think that, you know, I was a healthcare reporter at the time, but I was not someone who regularly went to the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was, and I think it was in part because I was a healthcare reporter. I just, I, I, I just thought, you know, 
it's this is so unlikely that this is something bad. I, I look back on it, and 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 that was actually the the really source of the extreme, I think, fear and trauma I had right after my diagnosis was I waited to get this checked out, and my punishment is that I'm going to die. I'm going to destroy like my entire family um, because of this dumb procrastination. But Kate also knew the statistics. It's really rare to be diagnosed with breast cancer as young as she was. Only 4% of cases occur in women under 40. And Kate didn't have a history of breast cancer in her family. When she finally went to the doctor, she found out she did have cancer, a really aggressive kind. But she had to wait on more tests to learn just how sick she was. There was this very fraught period of, I guess, like a week or two, where I knew that I had an aggressive, invasive cancer but I didn't yet know if it had spread all over my body. Um, So I was going through this series of scans. So I had a bone scan to see if it was in my bones. I had an abdominal CT um, to see if it had spread anywhere in my torso. Um, And if you're diagnosed with stage 4 disease with metastatic breast cancer, um, it's possible to live quite a long time in some cases, but um, in almost all cases, you will die of the disease ultimately, um, and you will be in treatment for the rest of your life. How did you talk about the possibility of your death with, with your husband, with Colin? I mean, this might sound weird, but we really talked about it kind of matter-of-factly. It was like, I might die. And he was like, you might. Um, and so we would really discuss it in a really honest way. Um, I remember um, having a beer with my husband at a bar um, and, you know, trying to get him to promise me that he would figure out a way to move on with his life and get remarried. Um, And he said, I'm not going to promise that. And I said, I know it feels that way now, but like, it's really important to me that I know that you will, you know, be okay ultimately. (laughs) And so this one, it was raining, I remember, and we were talking over beers at this bar. And after like 45 minutes of this, he said, look, maybe I'll get remarried when Evie is grown up. Evie's our daughter. Um, And that satisfied me. I was like, okay. You know, because when you think you might die, you're kind of, like, at least for me, I was just thinking, how can I, like, influence um, life after I'm dead? I think when you have cancer, you feel like you have no control over anything. So I think I was also trying to <clears throat> exert some control. You know, I think my husband was trying to comfort me, but also knew that it was no use to try to tell me everything would be fine um, because we both knew um, that it was possible that it would not be fine. So that was a, a really brutal period um, between finding out I had cancer but not knowing um, if it was everywhere yet. It, it's, it was the hardest period of my life, for sure. What time of year was it? It was December. The holidays. Yeah, the holidays, yeah. Um, in the middle of it, I went to San Francisco to spend Thanksgiving with my um, in-laws. And, you know, I think that after I was diagnosed with cancer, one experience I had was that everything in the world kind of seemed instantly like technicolor, like everything about being alive seemed kind of amazing. Mm. (laughs) Colors, scenes, like moments with my daughter, moments with my family. 
I, I think that probably sounds a little cheesy, but like it was so instantaneous that I could, I was actually observing this emotion in myself like, oh, suddenly everything seems like I want more of this. Not long after the holidays, Kate got some good news. Her cancer was only in one breast and her lymph nodes. It wasn't anywhere else in her body. But she did have to start chemotherapy immediately at UCLA. I would get there around 8 o'clock in the morning and probably leave um, around 4 p.m. Where would you sit? What was the chair like? So they try to make you pretty comfortable, at least at UCLA, when you get chemotherapy. So there were usually two rows of kind of pleather recliners facing outward, facing the windows. Um, It was this light-filled kind of airy space with gorgeous views. Um, We could see the Pacific Ocean from the floor. Hmm. Uh, And um, and it it, it was interesting because you're there for this very terrible thing. And so to be in this kind of beautiful um, environment while poison is being, you know, literally pumped into your body um, was a really weird uh, juxtaposition. And uh, to be honest, I mean, it was also kind of a nice time with my husband. And I guess that sounds weird, but it was just this quiet time for us to kind of just talk and be together. And oftentimes we would both be working on our laptops kind of in parallel. But there was something, um, there was something kind of peaceful um, about being there with my husband, um, you know, and to really kind of be in it together. So you have some privacy. A little bit, yeah. And there's sometimes chatter between the patients, but in general, everyone there is pretty self-contained. I, I didn't really, I did never talk to another patient uh, while I was getting chemotherapy. Why do you think that is? I I don't think that... It, it, this is, I think, different than a lot of cancer patients, but I did not have a strong desire to talk to other p- cancer patients while I was in treatment. I felt like um, I wanted to talk to my husband about it and my family and some close friends, um, but I, I didn't really enjoy the experience when you're a cancer patient, of sort of giving your stats, which is something you kind of do on a regular basis. You know, people ask you the specifics of your diagnosis, uh, what treatment you've had or what treatment is coming up. And that was not an experience I enjoyed so much. So I did kind of keep to myself. And there were other ways Kate wanted to keep her cancer diagnosis private, which meant keeping it less visible. Like, when she was starting chemo, her doctors recommended getting an IV port implanted in her chest to make it easier for nurses to administer chemo drugs. But Kate knew she didn't want one. I did not want to get a port in my chest because I knew it would leave a scar. Um, And I knew that the scar would be visible if I was wearing, like, a V-neck shirt or a scoop T-shirt. And I, I just so badly wanted to be able to return to normalcy afterward. Um, that I really didn't want that reminder of the scar. But I I had made an appointment to go get a port because everyone recommends it because the chemo drugs um, can really destroy your veins if you just get a peripheral IV. Um, And while I was there, the um, interventional uh, radiologist um, said, okay, we're going to put this 
poured in. And I said, okay, can you put it low? Because I don't want the scar to show after. And he said, well, I can't put it that low. What are your concerns? And very few people kind of asked me that question um, in terms of, you know, kind of like superficial things like this. And I told him what I was concerned about. And he said, well, we can give you a pick line. A pick line is sort of, um, is also a catheter, but it can go on the, the lower part of your bicep. Huh. Um, and it's instead of a long cut, it's just kind of a, a dot that the tube goes in that runs through your veins to your heart to deliver the drugs. Um, so I ended up getting that instead, and I don't have a scar. When he said, what are your concerns, did that feel like um, a nice invitation to articulate some things that you wouldn't have otherwise articulated to him, or did it feel like he was questioning your wishes? No, it felt great. It felt like here is an MD who's busy, whose time is worth a lot of money, who's going to stop and pull up a stool and sit down and ask me what I wanted and what I was worried about. So mm. I think it was a really great moment. And I um, I don't even remember the doctor's name, but I, I'll never forget him asking me that. It was at a different doctor's appointment that Kate learned about another way she could keep her treatment private, something called scalp cooling. Basically, like, freezing my head, literally, um, while I underwent chemotherapy. So my hair follicles didn't get damaged, and I didn't lose my hair. I remember walking out of the appointment and just saying to Colin, we're doing that. Like, I don't care what it costs. <laughs> if I don't have to go bald, I really don't want to. Well, um, do you and, know, were you yeah. surprised that that was such a thing that you knew so quickly and would would pay any price to keep your hair? It just seemed obvious. I mean, she had told us, I think, that it was like a few thousand dollars, um, which is not nothing. And, I, you know, we put it on a credit card like we did with many, many um, expenses during my cancer treatment. I had great insurance, but we still incurred, I think, about $10,000 um, of expenses for various things um, on, on credit cards. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that keeping my hair uh, just felt like keeping myself, um, that, that that might be possible. And so... You know, I didn't really look like a cancer patient. And so what that meant was that, you know, I just looked in the mirror and I could envision, you know, kind of a life beyond what I was experiencing at the moment. How did they how do they work? Is it is it just like your head is very, very cold? <laughs> yes. Um, they're sort of like, you know, those blue and white ice packs that they might give you in the hospital. Um, so they were kind of soft and they were filled with this white gel. Um, and they kind of looked like, um, almost like a helmet that like a water polo player would wear. Um, uh -huh. and it looked so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it looked nuts. And then the, the, I mean the, and you kind of, I kind of had to laugh at this, but like you have to keep putting the caps on even after the infusion is over. So I would have to leave the infusion center wearing a cold cap, mm. um, and um, on most of the chemo days, I had a very close friend that lived nearby, and we used to go over to her house for dinner um, after each infusion, and I would arrive looking like a water polo player um, with this cold cap on and kind of wear it, you know, do the, the final, like, 10 minutes or something um, at How her house. How amazing but, yeah. that you had that place to go. It was like a safe place to eat dinner in a cold cap. Yeah, I mean, I told her recently, too, like, th that I don't know that she fully, she and her husband, who used to cook, um, I don't know that they fully understand how much that meant to me to have something to look forward to on those days. And somehow we, like, managed to have fun dinner parties and great conversation, um, you know, 
despite the fact that I arrived looking kind of like an alien and, you know, was in the middle of really aggressive cancer treatment. Coming up, one other benefit of scalp cooling. I also knew that that would allow me to get through treatment without my daughter realizing that I was very sick. Um, And so that was extremely meaningful to me. Most cases of breast cancer, including Kate's, are not hereditary. Testing for mutations of breast cancer genes, though, is on the rise, especially among women who don't have a family history of cancer. A recent study found that the rate of low-risk women opting to get BRCA testing, as it's known, rose 37 percent between 2004 to 2014. Testing positive does not mean you will get sick but it does mean you have a higher risk of developing breast and ovarian cancer. A listener named Amy does have a family history of cancer. Her mother died from ovarian cancer at age 54, but she told us she still really wrestled with the decision of whether to get tested. I really didn't want to know if there was any kind of genetic link between her ovarian cancer and what I might face. I didn't want to get sucked into the medical industrial complex of cancer screenings and fear and worry. And I didn't want to know how I was likely going to die. Amy is 45, and initially she decided not to get tested. But then her aunt tested positive for a BRCA mutation, and Amy changed her mind and then found out that she too is positive. Amy had surgery to remove her ovaries and now gets screenings for breast cancer every six months. And she's finding that the fear and worry she anticipated is real. I thought that these screenings would be routine after a while, but they haven't been that way. And I also have this countdown clock in my head. My mom died at 54. That's less than nine years from now for me. And I think I'm going to be hearing that clock for the next nine years, counting down and wondering if I'm going to die. I could get prophylactic breast surgery uh, to have my breasts removed, but I really am afraid of losing another body part, of losing another part of what it means to me to be a woman and to be a sexual being in the world. You can read more of Amy's story in our weekly newsletter. You can find it and subscribe at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. On the next episode... You know, you say to somebody, they're like, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm in collections. Oh, you're one of those. 71 million Americans have debt in collections. And I talk with someone whose job it was to get people to pay their overdue bills. I actually, uh, even today, still feel like I was serving a really important purpose. Which was what? Was to recoup the funds into the economy that the banks and the lenders have let go to the wayside. The dirty little secret is that this debt that these people have, somebody has to pay for that. With what seems like an endless amount of information at our fingertips, we tend to forget that wondering about things is really part of the journey to finding answers we're looking for. So when it comes to the hot topics of Israel, Judaism, and Zionism, there's so much to wonder about right now that it's hard to know where to turn. Enter the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked. 
Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Biton and Noam Weissman as they tackle these topics and the uncomfortable questions that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. So check it out. Subscribe to Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wondering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com slash DSM Plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Kate Pickard's daughter Evie was three when Kate found out she had breast cancer. Having a young kid heightened all the anxiety of her diagnosis. I remember saying to my dad, like, if I could just get Evie to kindergarten, and this whole thing um, would be maybe slightly less horrifying. Um, And he said, okay, well, let's focus on that then. Let's focus on keeping you alive for two years. Like, that's an achievable goal. Um, I was also thinking, like, well, I survived long enough that my daughter will remember me. You know, I mean, the idea of having a daughter and dying and her never remembering you is was just devastating, you know? At the same time, it was like, is that better? Then she won't have to go through the pain of, like, seeing me die. Like, h- how do I—what's what, the least— terrible scenario here that I can imagine. Did you tell her anything about your cancer? We didn't. We didn't tell her anything. Um, She knows now. She's eight now. (laughs) Um, But no, I mean, I knew that it would affect her um, and that she wouldn't brush it off and that she would take it really seriously, even as a three-year-old. And I also knew that there was no way I could explain the complexity of what was happening um, to her at the time. And so we decided not to tell her anything. And when it was time for Kate to have surgery, a double mastectomy and breast reconstruction, Kate and Colin decided to send Evie to stay with her grandparents for a few weeks. The night before surgery, um, I... uh, I had a couple drinks, um, like, by myself, like, kind of sneaking into the kitchen, which is kind of a dumb thing to do. But my anxiety was, um, you know, incredibly ramped up. When you were preparing for your surgery, which you knew was going to change the way your your body looked um, Mm -hmm. for the rest of your life, 
how did you prepare for that? How can you prepare for that? I mean, there was no way to be prepared. Um, it was really hard to go to the hospital the morning of the surgery. We arrived at five o'clock in the morning, as you often do for surgery. And, um, you know, they, they started an IV. I changed into a gown. I had no slip socks on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was sitting in a small room. Um, my plastic surgeon arrived and my breast surgeon arrived. Um, and I think the thing that was the hardest moment, I think, was like sort of like lowering my hospital gown and the plastic surgeon drawing on my chest with that purple marker <laughs> um, that they do before plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, just realizing like this is it, like one final look down and that's it. Did you consider not having implants? <sighs> Not really, although I wish I had given it more thought. Um, I don't feel that anyone pressured me, but there was definitely an assumption on the part of my healthcare providers that this was something that I would want. But I think it's also rooted in kind of how we think about young women, how we think about um, a 30-something woman um, as this. As, you know, a 30-something woman is many things, but I think there's an element of you know, 30-something woman is also a sexual object and that this is um, a way of kind of restoring that. Um, I think looking back, I mean, there's kind of like no point in having regrets. It's done now. But the reconstructive surgery, because of the techniques used, um, my pectoral muscles were kind of sliced up and stitched back together to create like pockets for the implants. And that left me afterward very weak, And I've regained a lot of my strength um, in the years since, but I will never have sort of the pectoral strength that I had before. So it's always going to be a little tricky for me to like pull down the hatchback on the back of my SUV. (laughs) Um, Mm. Like it's really hard for me to open a jar because I just don't have that strength. And I've often thought that back when I was making this decision, if someone had asked me, would you rather have breasts or would you rather be strong? I, I don't know what I would have said. Um, I grew up on a farm. Like, I, I'm a person that really likes to work outside. And so um, that's a really important part of who I am. And there was kind of a mourning process of going through that. I remember going um, for a post-op appointment with my plastic surgeon and saying, like, okay, when can I do, like, downward dog again? Like, when can I, like, will I, when will I be able to do, like, push-ups? Not that I was doing push-ups all the time, but I, I knew that my pectoral muscles had been affected. And he said, oh, no, that's over. And um, I was like, what? <laughs> that's over. Yeah, th- that's done. In addition to both of her breasts, Kate had 22 lymph nodes removed. And the recovery after surgery was painful. More painful than she thought it would be. I think it was six days after my surgery. I was on all these opiates. I was like living in a recliner in the middle of my living room because to lay flat was so excruciating. Um, And the phone rang. And the person on the other end of the line was my oncologist, um, who was calling to tell me that um, a pathologist had sorted through all the tissue removed from my body during surgery and found that all of the cancer was dead. 
um, which meant that the chemotherapy and targeted intravenous drug treatment I got had worked. So I knew that my chances of surviving without a recurrence were very high, um, higher than 90%. Um, So it was the best piece of news I possibly could have gotten. It was Mm -hmm. a huge relief. Um, But just also on a personal level, I thought, okay, if the cancer was all dead, then why did I just have this surgery? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, did the doctor note to mention that? I mean, is that is that something no, that people I, ask? I think or? it's just, no, I, I don't think that doctors are yet sort of thinking about it in that way. They're just like, this is great news. You're going to live. Um, Which is great news. It's fantastic <laughs> news. Yeah. It's fantastic news. Sure. Yes. Um, but that occurred to me. And I thought, why am I going through what I'm going through right now then if it worked so well? And looking back at being diagnosed when you're 35, in your life and, and in many people's lives, like your mid-30s is this time of just like increasing momentum, kind of. Like there was a lot happening in your life. You were a relatively new parent. You were working. You were you were married. You're, there's a lot just propelling you forward. Um, and your treatment happened during all of that. Um, did, did it feel like it sort of paused life, or did it feel like something you had to just fit in? It paused life. Um, yeah, I, I did feel like we had all this forward momentum. We had just moved to California, which we had wanted to do for years. I was in the middle of a really thriving career. We had this little kid. We had a great marriage. We had a lot of friends. It was a, it was a life full of a lot of life. Like, there was so much... Uh, happening all the time, you know? And um, it did pause, and I was very cognizant of the pause because I saw all around me my friends continuing forward. Hmm. Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean, I kept working, and, you know, my daughter didn't know, and our relationship, you know, stayed great. But, yeah, it did feel like that momentum just, like, it just kind of, like, powered down um, and kind of paused. Right now, in your daily life, how much are you aware of your mortality? Um, I think about recurrence of my breast cancer every day. Um, When I ended treatment, it was like 20 times a day. And now... It's been almost five years since my diagnosis. I think I'm down to like once a day. I think about it, Um, about dying, about it coming back, about what that would be like. And I think about it because it's an increasingly remote possibility, but it is a possibility. Um, I think one of the reasons that I think about it a lot is because a big part of the trauma of my diagnosis was not just the information and the news that I had cancer, but part of the trauma was really rooted in the pure shock of it. Um, Mm. It was so surprising to me. It was so shocking um, that I think I never want to feel shocked like that again. And I think there's a part of me that feels like if I think about it coming back, then I will never be shocked if it happens. Mm. And so it almost feels to me like to think about that is sort of 
protective. I mean, I don't, I don't want it to recur because I don't want to die either, but the, <laughs> but the shock feels like something I can control. That's Kate Pickert. Her book is called Radical, The Science, Culture, and History of Breast Cancer in America. She's been in remission for five years. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Afi Yellow-Duke, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Kate and Colin always planned to have another kid. Cancer put that on pause. But a couple of days after Kate got her diagnosis, they decided to do IVF and froze some embryos. I don't know what we're going to do with them, but I'm really glad that they're there and that I still have that choice. And it, it, in a weird way, whatever kid is there, like if, if we decide to, to use those embryos and have another kid, it sort of feels like the kid I was going to have anyway, mm. because we kind of like froze time. So there's all kinds of things I think about it that feel quite miraculous. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.